Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about some of the key news stories affecting primary care over the past two weeks. Coming up, we're talking about what went on at last week's conference of local medical committees. We'll be looking at dissatisfaction around representation of GPs within the BMA and rounding up some votes from the conference that set out what LMCs want to see happen to tackle the current workload crisis. We'll also be talking about the results of a survey the BMA conducted among GP trainees and asking what it tells us about the future of the profession. And we'll be discussing the NHS pension and why the government's failure to tackle the issues around the annual allowance could mean that more GPs end up being hit with punitive tax charges. That's all to come on this week's Talking General Practice. Before we get started today, I just wanted to say a very sad goodbye to Luke. He's actually moved on to a new job now from GP Online and we're really going to miss him both on the podcast and in the office. It isn't quite the same without him and we'd just like to wish him the very best of luck in his future's endeavours. So first up today, Nick and I are going to discuss what happened at last week's UK LMC's conference and look at what it tells us about some of the key concerns within general practice. There are a number of big themes running through the conference, which we trailed on the last news podcast. Of course, workload was a big issue, which we'll come on to in a bit. But the other really big theme that came up repeatedly across the two days was how GPs are represented within the BMA. This covered both representation of sessional GPs and representation of GP partners. And it was clear that there's a growing sense of dissatisfaction from both camps. There's always been some tension between sessional and partner GPs, but until now, it has mostly been the feeling that sessional GPs have been underrepresented both within LMCs and the BMA. Nick, what impression did you get about why both partners and sessional GPs are a bit fed up with the way things are going and why are partners also unhappy now? Dissatisfaction among sessionals and partners was very clear at the conference and um, the tension between these two groups seems greater than it has been in the past. GPs are currently all represented within the BMA through the BMA GP committee, Uh, but there there were calls at the UK LMC's conference for separate committees or subcommittees to represent GP partners and sessional GPs, uh, stemming from a feeling among both groups that they're not adequately represented by the current structure. The BMA's GP leaders have always argued that the profession's stronger as a united front um, and that effectively what's good for partners is good for sessionals. Sessionals meaning locum and salaried GPs, just to be clear. Uh, And, you know, the reason they think that what's good for partners is good for sessionals is that prospering GP practices mean more opportunities for work for sessional GPs. But one of the debates at the LMC's conference looked at whether there was a need for a separate subcommittee within the BMA GP committee for contract holders, so meaning GP partners, to represent and discuss GP partnership issues. Um, And in fact, a majority of GPs at the conference backed this, although it was only voted on as what's called a reference. So this means it, it doesn't become the BMA GP committee policy, uh, although the committee will be expected to bear it in mind when forming policy or in sort of negotiations on behalf of the profession in future. So that demand for better representation for partners has been formally noted and should be considered in how the GP committee operates in future. And I think there's a sense that this is a bigger issue in England than it is anywhere else in the UK. The the motion debated around partnership and contracts was based on motions that came entirely from English LMCs. 
And as we've discussed previously, it's in England that Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid has suggested that general practice could be nationalised and turned into a salaried service bound up with hospital trusts. It's also in England that NHS leaders imposed unpopular contract changes for 2022-23 and where the PCN DES has caused real concerns about the independent contractor model of general practice being under threat. Anyway, th- these issues have fueled a sense that partners' interests just aren't being served well enough by the current representative structure. And what was really remarkable at this conference was that the vote for a separate partners' committee or subcommittee came less than an hour after the chair of the Sessional GP committee announced that he'd formally applied for Sessional GPs to become a separate branch of practice within the BMA. So that, that would make it an independent negotiating body outside the existing BMA GP committee. And the outgoing Sessional GP committee chair, Dr Ben Molyneux, uh, he, he said he wanted a complete reform of how GPs are collectively represented. So, as I said, it's clear that there's deep-rooted dissatisfaction with the leadership of general practice and that that runs across the profession from partners to sessionals. Just before the LMC's conference, um, the General Practice Defence Fund published a report that contained the findings of an independent review by QC into the current representative structures of GPs in the UK. That report was commissioned after a vote at last year's UK LMC's conference to undertake the exercise. And it was it was quite damning, wasn't it? And it also highlighted that tension between sessional GPs and GP partners. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, the, the context is that this was a report commissioned by the GP Defence Fund uh, and they hired a QC to lead an independent review of current representative structures for GPs in the UK. And the report picked up a lot of the themes that came out of debates on representation at the LMC's conference. And it said that the tension brought into sharpest relief through compiling the report was the tension between sessional GPs and partners. And the review said this tension was most notable in England, which is what we've mentioned previously, but but that it did exist also elsewhere in the UK. And, And basically, it highlighted conflicting views in the profession about how well partners and sessionals are represented currently and how they should be represented. And it pointed out that some GPs feel sessionals should have no say in contract negotiations as non contract holders themselves. Um, Whereas others would say that sessionals make up more than half of the profession now and therefore clearly should be represented in anything to do with practice contracts. The the review said ultimately this was an issue that needs to be bottomed out within general practice and that a failure to do so could lead to a split, much as the LMC discussions we've already mentioned would suggest is on the cards. And I think ultimately one of the key factors driving this rising dissatisfaction is that alongside the issues with government policy and contracts we've discussed, there's been a colossal shift in the makeup of the GP workforce in recent years and the leadership structures of the profession haven't really shifted to reflect that. You know, in the past, most GPs either were partners or wanted to be partners. But now more than half of GPs are sessional. Partner numbers have fallen dramatically over the past five years or more. And actually, there's a sense that uh, GPs coming through the system are less and less likely to want to become partners in future. The the UK BMA GP committee chair, that's a bit of a mouthful, said that the committee was dedicated to advocating for all GPs. But there's evidence here that something's going to have to change to persuade the profession as a whole that that's really the case. 
Yeah, I mean, we've obviously both been reporting on general practice for quite a long time now. And and in that time, we've seen what you described there, that real shift away from GPs wanting to be partners to more and more people wanting to be salaried and locum GPs. I mean, we've talked on the podcast before about some of the reasons behind this. And also some of the reasons why GPs, you know, whether they're partners, salaried or locum, are cutting back on the numbers of hours they work. And one of the sessions that I watched at the conference was um, related to trainee GPs and the BMA's GP trainee subcommittee, it's another mouthful there, um, presented some really worrying findings from a survey suggesting that both of these trends, you know, the move away from partnership and the shift to working less sessions look set to accelerate in the future. So just to run through some of those findings, the survey, which was a survey of 626 GP trainees from across the UK, that found that 55% in tended to work as salaried doctors after qualifying and 27% said they would work as a locum GP. Only 23%, so that's under a quarter, said they ever intended to work as a partner at any point in their career, You know, which is obviously a huge shift from the days when nearly everyone wanted to be a partner at least at some point. Um, in terms of working hours, 32% plan to work six sessions a week after qualifying. 21% said they would work five sessions and 20% said four. Only 16% said they would work seven sessions or more and just 6% said they would be a full-time GP. You know, but perhaps the most worrying finding, which is is the, the headline from the story we wrote about this, was that 13% of trainees said they didn't even plan to work in general practice after they qualified. So while we're now training more GPs than ever across the UK, most of them are planning to work six sessions or less and a fairly significant minority say they won't even work as GPs. I mean, obviously, as we've talked about before, sessions is a fairly crude measure now for the actual amount of hours GPs work. I mean, it effectively only really covers the time they spend seeing patients and doesn't account for the many additional hours of paperwork, results and other tasks they have to carry out in a day. And all that additional work makes a day of two sessions ridiculously long and clearly means that people working part time are often effectively doing the equivalent of what most normal people would consider full time hours. So, I mean, I think this is the reality of what trainees are seeing every day. You know, GPs working really long hours with massive workloads. And it was suggested at the conference that this might be why trainees are planning to quit before they've even started. Um, The survey also found that 75% of GP trainees had themselves already experienced symptoms of burnout, stress, depression or anxiety. You know, so I think it's perhaps not surprising that some of them might be rethinking their career options and most of them want to work in a much more flexible way. I think it also shows really that there's a a mountain to climb to tackle the workload and workforce crisis general practice is facing. You know, I'm talking about workload there. The workload crisis was a real driving force behind some of the big motions up for debate as well, wasn't it? I mean, we talked on the last podcast about that vote on whether to cut core hours to nine to five and the vote on introducing safe working limits to the contract. Can you explain what happened with those, Nick? Yeah, I mean, like you say, as we talked about last time on the podcast, LMCs were voting on whether to call for a reduction in core hours from the current 8am to 6.30pm to nine to five and for workload limits to be negotiated into practice contracts. Um, The the conference actually rejected the call to shorten core hours, but did vote in favour of workload limits uh, in the contract. I mean, just to be clear, 
this really doesn't mean it'll happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, NHS England has already shown that um, it's perfectly happy to impose changes to the contract unilaterally, and the chances of it agreeing to write into GP contracts some kind of cap on the number of patient contacts GPs and other clinical staff can have per day, for example, seems quite unlikely. Yeah. But the, the point behind both the call for shorter core hours and workload limits is the same, that pressure on general practice at the moment is unbearable, uh, that there is simply a massive mismatch between demand and capacity, and that somehow action needs to be taken to protect the GP workforce from ever-expanding unlimited workload. There's been criticism of general practice in the usual parts of the media for even suggesting these sorts of changes. But GPs have argued that the key point here is not about limiting access, it's about making sure that the service remains safe. Uh, We've reported this year on the fact that GPs are doing not far off double the number of patient contacts per day considered safe by the BMA. And given the government's failure to deliver on promises to increase the workforce and its admission that NHS hospital waiting lists, which are a huge driver of extra pressure on GPs, are going to keep rising for some time, GPs are simply calling for protection for themselves and their patients. You mentioned the waiting list there. Um, And last time on the podcast, I also mentioned that there were some motions debated around workload being pushed out from hospitals. You know, and it's clear that this this is a real issue. um, And it was also something that came up at the conference. So the LMC's They voted for the BMA to push for extra funding for practices to deal with all the additional work caused by the backlog of NHS care in hospitals. So what we're talking about here is more funding to deal with all the extra appointments that that are being taken up uh, at GP practices by patients who are on the waiting list. And they were also pushing for more accountability from hospitals if GP referrals are refused. There was another debate on workload where a GP suggested that hospitals should also publish waiting times for each individual specialty to help reduce the number of queries coming into general practice. He estimated that a rather staggering 10 to 15 percent of appointments in his practice were being taken up by patients coming in to ask about hospital appointments. GPs were saying a lack of communication from hospitals to patients about weights was not only blocking up general practice, it was also causing patients you know, huge amounts of unnecessary stress. So there are now 6.4 million people waiting for treatment in England. And one GP told the conference that it's absolutely unacceptable that none of the additional money for the elective recovery plan, which is NHS England's elective recovery plan, has been earmarked for general practice. So GPs were talking about money to cover the additional appointments I mentioned um, just then. But there's also this expectation in the recovery plan that the use of advice and guidance services is going to increase to help tackle the backlog. And as we've mentioned before, these are systems where GPs are told they need to get advice from a hospital specialist before they refer. And I suppose the rationale behind this for NHS England's point of view is that this could stop people from ending up on the waiting list or I guess at least keep them off the waiting list while hospitals try to shrink the current backlog. But obviously, the reality from GPs' point of view is that they end up having to carry out additional tests or investigations that would previously have been carried out in hospitals. And there's no sign of any more money to cover this work coming into general practice. In fact, one GP told the conference that they're often given a list of tests and medical management plans from the hospitals, and then they do all that work, and then they still end up referring the patient later because the problem's not resolved, and it's now outside of the GP's expertise to deal with. So what you end up in is a situation where there's often loads more work for practices, no more money, and then the patient ends up in the hospital system anyway. 
So that's the kind of key points that that we reported on from the UK LMC's conference last week. And you can find all the news from the event, which includes a lot of information about other debates on our website at gponline.com. So moving on to something different, Nick, last week you also reported on some concerns that more GPs could find themselves unwittingly breaching the pension annual allowance limit and therefore be potentially in line for some hefty tax bills. What's going on with that? It's been clear for some time that the way the annual allowance mechanism was set up uh, simply didn't factor in how it would interact with defined benefit pension schemes such as the NHS pension scheme. A financial expert I spoke to recently said it was set up with fat cats on big incomes in mind. Uh, Basically, people who were trying to shelter lots of money uh, or big bonuses through pension tax relief. But as if there hadn't been enough examples of the annual allowance having a negative impact, such as doctors prepared to work longer hours, finding, finding out that they can't because to do so would actually cost them money by triggering tax penalties... There's now a real issue emerging with um, rising inflation. So can you just explain exactly why rising inflation matters and how inflation affects GPs' pensions? So just to explain, the annual allowance limit is £40,000. That's the limit on pension growth within a year. And because pension pots are linked to the CPI measure of inflation, their pension pots are uprated according to the the measure of inflation. So the inflation measure is high, then that uprating is high. And as a result, the growth in the pension pot is accelerated, is is larger. So then there's also one other factor that's a problem here, which is that... um, It's a kind of loophole in the NHS pension scheme, um, and it's been called the CPI disconnect by uh, accountants and financial experts. And what that means is that even if pensions growth in the following year is negative, so if pension growth goes down after the year in which the growth is high because of high uh, inflation... GPs can't write off tax charges from the previous year in that following year. So they don't they don't have the chance to benefit from a a sort of shrinkage in their pension the following or slowing down the pension growth the following year. And inflation is now at a 40 year high. Uh, and, and simply because of this, growing numbers of GPs are now facing the prospect of costly tax penalties. Um, and that's even if their working hours are unchanged and their income is unchanged. So far from affecting only high earners, experts are saying that, for example, a female GP aged 50 to 59 years old, earning £53,500 before tax, now stands to fall well over the annual allowance threshold. One accountant shared an example of a part-time partner who's never hit the threshold previously, now looking at going well over it and facing a tax penalty simply because inflation is high at the moment. But ultimately, what all this means is that the GP workforce, which is already in decline and far short of the level needed to cope with current demand, could be further eroded because doctors are going to look to reduce their working hours or quit to avoid having to pay large sums in tax penalties. And for for a government that says it wants to boost the GP workforce, sorting out this problem as a matter of urgency should be a big priority. But so far, ministers are sticking to the line that it's only a problem for high earners, which the experts say simply isn't true. Finally, a bit of good news about a coaching support system that was rolled out for primary care staff in England during the pandemic. 
The Looking After You Too programme was introduced at the height of the pandemic for GPs and other staff and involved free online coaching. A review of the scheme recently by the Institute for Employment Studies found it was effective in improving short-term perceived well-being and resilience. The scheme is still running now and still available free for GPs and other primary care staff. And we published a story about it on our website last month, which explains the findings from the Institute for Employment Studies review and includes two case studies of two GPs who've benefited from the scheme. You can find links to that story and the coaching programme itself in the notes for this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Nick. We're back next week, but until then, you can keep up with all the latest news affecting primary care, as well as accessing other advice and education on our website at gponline.com.